0: Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. Yeah, 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 yeah. The Wednesday decking Yeah, yeah. What's up? Wednesday is already in the books, if you can believe that, and we did cover a lot of ground. Tiger Woods' bad weekend continued. A police report revealing that his sled was banged up even before the cops found it. The blinker was on and he was napping it out bad things and the video is going to drop of that arrest. Meanwhile, Major League Baseball handed out suspensions, 6 games for Hunter Strickland and Bryce Harper is now down to 3 games on appeal. Also, a very good interview day. Patrick Peterson of the Arizona Cardinals, New York Times best-selling author Jeff Perlman, PGA Tour pro Kevin Kisner fresh off his win at Colonial. All of that and more. Alvy, let's get it going. I'm going to start with a Tiger Woods update on this Wednesday. Update being the following. Come to find out his car was heavily damaged when police stopped him and arrested him for DUI over Memorial Weekend. That, according to a police report obtained by TMZ. The report lists two flat tires on the driver's side of his car, in addition to damaged rims and bumpers and a broken taillight. So not only is dude napping it out in the middle of the night, on the side of the road, in a car that's still running... He's doing it in a rig that is jacked up while rolling on a couple of flat tires. So all that damage shows just how lucky this guy is and everybody else is that he did not hurt somebody else or himself. Because you don't get two flats just rolling down an empty road in Florida. I mean, what was he driving over or through that led to all that damage? And if they thought that a quick statement about, quote, an unexpected reaction to prescribed medications was going to make this whole thing go away, then they could not have been more off, more wrong. And something tells me that when the arrest video does come out later on today, it's not going to be pretty. And trust me, this thing's not going away. It's like Tiger and his team went way out of their way to let everybody know that there was no alcohol involved in the incident. Great. So what's your point? Nice try with that. Like, oh I wasn't being irresponsible. It wasn't like I just went out on some crazy bender on a holiday weekend and got smashed out of my mind. To the contrary. I'm recovering from back surgery. I took a few prescription painkillers. I simply did not know what to expect in the way of a reaction. Innocent mistake. (laughs) Wrong answer, Cat. Wrong card to throw, Cat. Any answer other than, I made a catastrophic mistake, I need help, I'm going to get it, get right, and golf is the furthest thing from my mind, is the wrong answer. I don't care that alcohol wasn't involved. The dude was clearly under the influence of something. So how the hell does that guy get behind the wheel of that car, in that condition, at that time in the morning? That's what aggravates me. Where the hell did that guy have to be at that time of night? that was worth risking his life, and even worse, somebody else's. I mean, there's being a little loopy after taking a pain pill or two, too many. Then there's napping it out in the middle of the night on the side of the road with a couple of flat tires, the engine running, and jacking up an assortment of field sobriety tests. That's after telling the cops that he was in Los Angeles playing golf, only to change that story. That's after telling the cops he thought the Romberg alphabet test was doing the National Anthem backwards. No, he didn't look like or apparently sound like a guy that may have swallowed a vike or two too many. He looked and apparently sounded like a dude who was bleep-faced. And if not on liquor, then something else. The bottom line here, your cat, your life, your legacy, your reputation, your family. Those are all your things. Do what you want with all of them. Who am I to tell you what to do? But if I were you, instead of spinning this or trying to rationalize this, I would see it for what it is. Rock freaking bottom. Look in the mirror and for the first time ever, own something. Don't give us some lame, bogus, insincere presser where you tell everybody what you think they want to hear, but what you really don't mean. Own it. Own that and own what you've done to yourself in your life. Own it. Get the help you need. Do the hard work on yourself that needs to be done. And do it before it's too late. Had you done it already, you'd be much better off. Do it before it's too late. And for your sake, you better hope this is rock bottom. Just as you better hope that that arrest video is not as bad as we all know it's going to be. Patrick Peterson is my guest. Patrick, Jim, great to have you back. How are how you? I'm doing?
1: I'm doing all right. Yourself, Jim? How you doing? Good, bud. How about you? I'm hanging in there. Just got out of practice. Ready to get home to my little one.
0: My man. Putting in the work and spending time with the family. That's how you do it. You know, you've been going through OTAs, Patrick. You're one of the guys who's in early for optional workouts. So what's that tell you when you see other guys showing up at 6 o'clock in the morning to get their work in? What's that tell you about the attitude of everybody in that locker room going into this season?
1: You know, everyone is going to have the same goal at mine. You know, you want to come in. You want to have mainly all your guys here so you can get that continuity um, throughout the season. I'm sorry. Throughout the early part of the season, which is you know OTAs and minicamp and things like that, so we can have that confidence within one another when we step out on the field September 10. So it won't we, it won't be a knockoff for it because we have a, a bunch of new faces that's that's joining the, that's joining the team, and we we just want to make sure that we. uh everyone's on the same page at all times.
0: Patrick Peterson joining us. All right, so you're coming off a season, as I mentioned, we were 7-8-1 and one after three straight seasons with double-digit wins. How challenging was last year and then how much does that motivate you this off-season?
1: Last year was very, very challenging. Um, but I think it was a, you know, um, a wake-up call for us because, you know, so many people was putting us on the pedestal and we really haven't done anything yet. You know, we was a team that played very well up until the NFC Championship two years ago. Then last year we you know people was putting us in the super bowl so we thought we was already there so it was, i thought it was a good um eye opening uh um experience for us now i believe we have guys that's more hungry uh, we have guys that's not uh that's willing to respect the process each and every week you know um uh, respecting um doing their due diligence as far as um you know game prep um uh, coach also alluded to it you know all season you know it, it was something about you know we have a, a thousand minute arrows in in a game but we don't have that many during practice so it was something within that that that, that 34 to 24 hour window leading up to the game to where i guess now i won't say guys were taken lightly but guys wasn't doing their job as far as making sure they was tuning in with the game plan but now i think everybody's on the same plan, on the same page and uh, we're definitely ready to roll
0: that's peterson's a six-time pro bowler you know you're looking at the numbers or i am from pro football focus and they had A stat where you had 601 coverage snaps last year, but were targeted just 71 times, which meant that you were the cornerback who quarterbacks avoided the most. So when you see that, do you take that as an honor or is there a part of you thinking, come on now, you can't, if you don't throw at me, I can't make a play. And why don't you throw (laughs) one at me once in a while?
1: And I think that's probably one of the reasons why I was kept out of the Hall of Pro. Um, Voting because I didn't get that many opportunities but at the same time I can't help it because I'm guarding teams I'm on receiver week in and week out and they're avoiding me so that's nothing much more I can do. I'm putting myself in the best position possible to to get plays but at the end of the day I just want to continue getting better. I want to continue doing the little things Um, all I can control is what I can control I can't control the quarterback throwing the ball my way or to the opposite side of the field Um, I just want to continue getting better make sure I'm dialed in each and every play to where I don't relapse to like year fourteen while taking plays off or wasn't doubt and for the entire game because they have eyes in the sky that notice, that's so where I want to make sure that I'm on top of my game each and every play. So when the ball or play do come my way, I'm uh, more than prepared to make it.
0: All right. But specifically, in terms of getting better, for instance, when guys are drafted, they put up a graphic of their strengths and weaknesses. And somebody recently tweeted a screenshot from when you were drafted and under attributes it said things like off the charts, talent, athleticism, great catch-up ability and range, great value as a return specialist. And then mm-hmm. under areas of concern, it simply said, quote, none. None. So (laughs) what do you think when you see that? And in terms of where you can improve, what are the areas where you want to get better?
1: Uh, I think it's a a bunch of little things I I believe I can improve on. Like, you know, my my pat level when I'm in my off man, Um, getting my hands on receivers more often than none when I'm in my press. You know, little things like that. You You know, I'm always trying to find ways. I'm always watching film. I'm always trying to find something to put me ahead, ahead of the curve. And I believe that's what drives me um, year in and year out because, it, like I said, it's always something I feel that I can be better at. And like last year, I felt like in my when I was playing off-man or a zone coverage, I was just a little bit too high. And now I'm working on my pad level this year, making sure over-exaggerating, making sure my shoulders are always over my toes, making sure my eyes, are, I'm reading the quarterback through the three-step, um, back to the receiver, just little things like that. and I believe that's what's going to get me more plays because I press so much and quarterback, knows. It's a, it's a timing thing, so we, we, we bring so much pressure, and I just I disrupt the timing so much at the line of scrimmage. Maybe I do need to step off a little bit. So those are things I've been working on um, in the offseason here.
0: Give me one minute so I can talk to you about Ferguson. Ferguson helps facilities pros by supplying innovative and reliable products. But what Ferguson really offers are solutions. Ferguson has a dedicated team of facilities experts and with nationwide coverage, we deliver directly to your facility right when you need them. Plus, Ferguson's broad inventory of maintenance, repair, and operations products, along with plumbing, HVAC, and appliances, sets Ferguson apart from traditional facility suppliers. So learn more about how Ferguson Facility Supply can help your facility at ferguson.com today. That's Ferguson. Now it's back to our Daily Jungle. Patrick Peterson joining us. All right, Seahawks receiver Doug Baldwin said in a radio interview recently that you're the opposing cornerback who gives him the most problems in terms of separation. He said, quote, he causes the most issues for me just because of his athleticism, and the more I give him, even if I do win at the line of scrimmage, he's so athletic that he can recover so quickly. So let me turn that around. Who were some of the wide receivers who challenge you the most?
1: We was actually, that's crazy you brought Doug up. We was actually literally just talking about Doug. A few minutes ago, about how he's—he may not be the quick, uh, he may not be the fastest, but he's so crafty at the line of scrimmage. Like he's, him and Antonio Brown are probably the most crafty I've won against. You know, um, I haven't won against Odell yet. You know, That'll be—this will be my first time going up against him. But those guys, those two guys, just pop out. You know, as far as being so crafty at the line of scrimmage to where they give you different looks. They, 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 they give you that illusion to where the body and their hands are moving, but they're not going anywhere, but it, it seems like they're moving really, really quickly. Uh, Doug has this very unique release where he, he kind of, he walks up to you and look like he's hopping and that gets the DB I's up and he makes a quick, a real quick, uh, move. So Doug Baldwin at the line of scrimmage, he's probably the one that gives me the most trouble. But like he said I, I i when i if I do end up getting beat at the line of streamers, which is very um very little, I do have the speed and the ability to to catch up with the receivers, but those are little things that I'm talking about as far as I want to make sure that I get my hands on the receiver much more often but because I don't want to always use my speed. Because I'm getting up there, not up there in age, but as far as playing wise, I'm getting up there, and I'm, I can't always rely on my speed. Are
0: right, you mentioned Odell Beckham, and you've not gone up against him yet? Are you looking forward to that matchup, and how do you think that'll go?
1: What do you expect? I am. I'm definitely looking forward to, um, to go up, going, going up against Odell. Because like I said, he's the the only uh, he's the only one left. That's you know, uh, of the of the top tier receivers that I haven't went up against. I'm looking for a great matchup. It's going to be Christmas Eve. Uh we know the lights going to be very very bright um and i'm i'm am I'm looking for a great game that we i hope that we come out on top but i i think it's going to be a very very interesting um matchup just because like i said i never went up against him um i've, I've been watching film on him already throughout this uh throughout this off season i'm sure he's going to bring his A game and odell's very very unique because he has the size the speed the power the agility i mean he has it all hands i mean he has it all so i, I have to make sure i bring my lunch pail to work that day for sure
0: Hey, listen. I mean, the very best who've ever played the game still get beat on occasion. When right. was the last time in your football life that you walked off the field and thought to yourself, "Man, that guy got the better of me today"?
1: Uh, I would have to say Julio Jones in 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, he gave me my worst game as a pro, um, probably as a as a football player in general. Um, that was a year that I, you know, was overweight, not not very healthy. Um, that was a game i felt that i that was the only game i felt i walked away and was like i i let my team down I, he got the best of me that day and that's why when we played those guys this year it was very important to me that i i was on my a game that i that i that i did that i did a lot of studying that i was more than prepared going into that game and I thought this game was a great matchup and um, I thought I came out on top um, but I, I'm quite sure I'm going to see Julio again and I'm looking for another great battle which it always is when we go up against each other
0: Patrick Peters and my guest before I let you go a few weeks back you and your wife went to Haiti and you worked mm-hmm. on a number of projects now you've been involved in community service projects and events in the U.S. for quite some time so where did the idea for that trip come from and what was the experience like for you and your wife
1: You know, that experience was uh, definitely an eye-opening experience. Um, You see so many things on television, as far as like from Haiti, Guatemala, Africa, and and things like that. You see these kids that's needing help, and you really never really see, you know, it in person. And um, when we went there, it was like, wow, like this is for real. You know, we we had kids walking around with no bottoms on, you know, girls walking around with no bra, no tops on, and like families really, really starving. For food, not having fresh water, not having power—like pretty much every village that we went in had no power. All they had was, you know, a stove uh, that that was ran by fire. Um, You know, and that was definitely something that um, that I thought it touched very dear to me because the thing I really loved about that trip is, no matter although that's all they saw. No matter what village we went to, no matter what the circumstances were with any of those families, they had a smile on their faces, they was they was upbeat, they had energy. And you know, I think about, you know, people in America we always, you know, complain about the little things but they really don't know how other people in the world have it. But the idea came from my wife um, I had to give her the credit on this one for sure. She uh, always wanted to do a mission, tri- a mission trip the year that my daughter was born. So we we couldn't go because she was pregnant. And we had to push it off last year because now she's in medical school. So this time permitted for us, uh, it matched up very, very well. And um, this was totally her idea. She told me about it. I wanted to do it. And, you know, she's in the medical field. She's going to her last year of medical school. She graduates uh, 2018 May. And um, she did a bunch of things in, uh, in, 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 the, in the hospitals and, the, and, and things, in the clinics and things like that. And I did a, a lot more things throughout the, throughout the village as far as going, getting fresh spring water, planting, uh, planting um, uh, trees so they have shade because it's hot as heck over there. Just little things like that and, and, and just seeing the joy that we brought to them, it definitely made me look, up, look at life in a totally different perspective.
0: It sounds like it had an amazing impact on you. Would you go back and do it again?
1: Oh no doubt about it. We made it. Um, I'm actually next year. I'm um, trying to uh, g- group up a team of fo- uh, team of um, a team of my teammates and want to go back up there uh, next year for sure. Me and my wife are going to make it uh, a yearly thing for sure.
0: In the NBA Finals, Game One tomorrow night. I tried to get to it yesterday, but let me get my prediction out there right off the top, so I get this out of the way and I don't lose another day. I'm going to tell you something about this. When everybody is going one way, I go the other way. Always. I've done this for a long time now. And more often than not, it works out for me. And literally, everybody is picking Golden State. Not only picking Golden State, but picking Golden State to roll. And frankly, I'm not really sure why. I mean, don't get it twisted. The Warriors are great. My point is, so are the Cavaliers. There's a ton to like about the Cavs right now. LeBron is still the best player in the world. He's playing arguably his best postseason basketball ever. Kyrie is a killer. He's locked in like I've never seen him before. Kevin Love is playing his best basketball since he arrived in Cleveland. Tristan Thompson always gets his against Golden State. And the guys that David Griffin brought in were brought in for this very moment. And they're going to come through. So you go ahead and run with the mob. You go ahead and kick it with all the other sheep. Not me. I'm not only taking the Cavs. I'm taking the Cavs in five for all the reasons I just mentioned. Again, sure I'm not. But Cleveland's nice. In fact, they're so nice and I respect them so much, I'm going to let them win one game. They're not better than Golden State. They're not going to win. Golden State was up on the Cavs three games to one last year, but they're better now than they were then. Much better and different. Difference being, Steph Curry, who was busted up and did not play well in the finals last year, is healthy and playing some of his best basketball this year. Different, obviously, because they added Kevin Durant. Different and better because they're running on some serious fuel and playing with a chip on their shoulder. The type of fuel that can only come from having a blown 3-1 series lead and losing Game 7 on their own floor. Fact is, they are better, and they're deeper, and they're more motivated, and they've got the home court. Oh, and they're better. They're not losing. Warriors in five. Good. Got that prediction done. I'm not going to lose a whole day with that. We are joined now by Jeff Perlman. Jeff, good morning. What's up? How are you? Hey, Jim. How's it going? Good, Jeff. How are you? How are things? I am well. I have no complaints, and happy California. I was going to say, how is your California lifestyle? Bring me up to date. It's. I mean, it's great. I'm always outside.
2: I'm at the beach. And I owe it all to you, Jim.
0: Yeah, I'd love to take credit for it, but definitely not. And what, Jeff, you're talking about is you would come on my TV show and you came to California. You like California. But liking California and visiting California is one thing. Deciding to uproot your entire life and your family and move here is entirely different. Was that a tough decision and a tough move?
2: It was hard. It was hard convincing my wife. And, uh, you know, I'm not exaggerating when I say, when I was doing your show, I came out one time and I brought her with me. And she was like, I'm not moving, I'm not moving, I'm not moving. And then she came out, and we went to Balboa, and we went to, you know, uh, you know uh, I don't know, Huntington Beach, did a bunch of different places, and, and she was kind of sold. It's been three years of, of pretty
0: great. And then she said, I'm not going home, I'm not going home, I'm not going home. I'm staying. I'm staying.
2: No more winner. No more winner.
0: All right, then. So before we get into the story that involves Tupac, Suge Knight, Mike Tyson, Bruce Seldon, and the Long Beach Poly football team back in 1996, let's go ahead and set the stage appropriately for those who are not familiar with the Long Beach Poly football program. It's a program that has produced players like William McGinnis and Deshaun Jackson. So what was that Poly football team like in 1996?
2: All right, so they had five guys who went on to play in the NFL and about a dozen who played Division One college. But it was not a great team yet. It was uh, a lot of sophomores, uh, a couple juniors, I think only two main seniors. So they were a very immature and young team with a lot of talent. Um, and, and you know, uh, But they weren't quite ready yet. They weren't quite ready yet. They weren't, they weren't going to be great yet. They were a year or two away.
0: All right, so they were coming back from a season-opening loss to Las Vegas' Green Valley High. And it was a trip, Jeff, that had not worked out so well. How were the coaches hoping that that trip would go, not just on the field, but off it? And then how did it actually go?
2: All right, so so they thought it would be a real good learning experience to take these kids um, on the road for a game. You know, Long Beach Poly, it's located in a pretty low-income area. A lot of these kids don't get to experience that much. So they, they arranged the game, uh, as you said, in, in Las Vegas, and um, they booked rooms at the Circus Circus. They got a really good rate at Circus Circus in Vegas. And they told the people when they, when they booked all the rooms that they needed it to be a block. Like, they needed it to be two floors all together. And uh, so the kids, they could keep an eye on the kids. And uh, what happened is Circus Circus screwed up. And the kids were spread all over the hotel. So it was the night before the game, opener, season opener. And the kids just go everywhere. And they're out drinking, and they're walking the strip, and they're, you know... Coaches are seeing their kids kind of sneaking in the casinos. They're everywhere. And the next morning when they meet for breakfast, you know, a bunch of the kids smell like alcohol. Their kid would smoke pot on the bus. Um, it was just a bunch of kind of immature young kids being let loose in Vegas. And suddenly the football game wasn't nearly as important as just having this, this fun experience for them.
0: All right, so what happened to the game itself? Uh, they got killed.
2: Uh, they got destroyed. They were terrible. Their marquee running back uh, fumbled five times. Their quarterbacks combined to throw three interceptions and no touchdowns. Total, complete disaster. And, uh, you know, then they got on the bus to take the bus home, and, and it was a dead quiet, The uh, you know, the, the entire trip. So it was, a, it was a real devastating loss for them, actually.
0: All right, Jeff Perlman joining us. So they're making the trip home. It could not have gone any worse. It did not go the way the coaches had expected. And then they make a stop in Barstow. What happened then? Right, so they have you been to the uh, In-N-Out Burger in Barstow, Jim? I've driven by it, but I've never actually stopped at it. Yet it's
2: pretty marquee. It's the second largest In an It's the first uh, largest, physically, second largest uh, number of people per year who would visit. They stop at the In and Out burger and they pull up and, and they park. There. They're on two buses and they had a quarterback named Robert Holly. And Robert Holly looks out the window of the bus as they're parking and he sees Tupac and his entourage. And Tupac Shakur was traveling uh, from uh, Southern California to Las Vegas for the Mike Tyson Bruce Seldon fight that night. And the quarterback's like, holy crap, that's Tupac, that's Tupac. And a bunch of the players come running out of the bus, and they run up to Tupac. And Tupac is um, hes there with about, I don't remember how many guys exactly, five or six bodyguards. And these are gang members hired by Suge Knight uh, to, to protect uh, Tupac on the trip. And usually he had an actual security team uh, hired by Death Row. But the security guards who usually worked uh, with Tupac went ahead and were in Las Vegas getting the firearms license uh, for that night, the temporary firearms license for that night's uh, fight. So these were kind of just gang members who were hired to work temporarily. So these players kind of run up on Tupac, and Tupac's back is turned to them. But the, the guys uh, protecting him see him, and the, and the guys start reaching for their guns. And Tupac turns around, and, and he sees these guys running up on him, and he gets really kind of freaked out. He's like, yo, 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 no, 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 no! You can't just run up on a guy, and and they kind of explain who they are. No, no, we're uh, we're from we're from Long Beach Poly. We're from Long Beach Poly, and then they kind of settle down and calm down a little bit. But they, but they were all definitely kind of freaked out by it all.
0: Jeff Probyn joining us. I was going to say, Jeff. So what what were the players' reaction to Tupac's reaction? What did the kids make of that?
2: Well, some of them um, were were kind of just headed back to the bus and were were pissed off and thought, who who the heck does this guy think he is? Others stayed and kind of talked to him, and, um, and he, he became better. He was like, oh, you guys are from Long Beach. Do you know Snoop? Because um, he was close with Snoop Dogg. Um, and, the, and the other thing that was kind of weird is Suge Knight, the CEO of Death Row, um, if, you, if you read the investigation into Tupac's murder, because this, this is the same day that Tupac was killed, um, supposedly Suge Knight met Tupac in, in Las Vegas later that night. But four or five of these guys told me that Suge Knight was 100%, with 100% certainty, there at the In-N-Out Burger, literally ordering hamburgers and walking out to their fleet of vehicles. So the guys were, they were dumbfounded by seeing Tupac. They were dumbfounded by seeing Suge Knight. They were shaken by having guns pointed at them. And, uh, but ultimately, I think for most of them, it was kind of a thrill.
0: Jeff Roman joining us. know, back to your other point, I was going to bring that up. It's been long assumed that the two of them, Suge Knight and Tupac, met up in Vegas later on that night. I mean, there's no way that these guys, four or five of them or anybody else, could have confused Suge Knight for somebody else, right?
2: No, factually, it was with 100% certainty that it was Suge Knight. And these guys, a lot of these guys, a lot of kids on the team grew up sort of around hip-hop. There's a really famous uh, record shop slash studio right around the corner from the high school from Long Beach Poly. So it wasn't like these guys were going to confuse Suge Knight for just some guy. They, they knew exactly who he
0: was. All right, so some things started to sell down, but then when the Long Beach Poly players got back on the bus, some of them started to shout at Tupac after they were out of range for him to hear. What types of things did they shout?
2: Well, one of them, so they're, you know, it was like, oh, F you and go to hell. And, and one of them's like, uh, one of them literally yells out, hey, I, I hope you get shot. And uh, that stuck with uh, with some players on that team. The guy literally yelling, I hope you get shot. Because um, I don't know how many hours later that night on the strip in Vegas Tupac was actually shot and it was kind of a it was definitely a jarring thing for those players
0: I hope you get shot and then later on he was that night Now there's always a story behind the story and this is an amazing story itself, but what about that story behind the story your involvement with this started with a series of tweets. what were the tweets and then how did you get involved?
2: All right, so I, um, I, didn't, I, I knew nothing about this story, and it's kind of amazing. I, I've interviewed a lot of people who know a ton about Tupac, including the, one of the lead investigators into his murder. And when I told him about this, he's like, I had no idea that happened. And um, there was a writer in uh, Long Beach who, I don't know, maybe a year ago, tweeted um, something along the lines of, uh, one day I should, I should write about, or one day someone should look into the night Tupac met the Long Beach Poly football team. And one of my editors of Bleach Report said, just sent me an email and said, do you, do you want to be the guy who looks into this? And um, I grew up a big Tupac fan. I love hip-hop. Uh, I live out here now. So there's sort of a lesson there, I guess, which is don't, don't tweet out ideas that you might write one day. Hmm. But it was, such a, it, it was such an intriguing story that I figured I would. So I, I literally tracked down an old uh, Long Beach Poly uh, yearbook from 96 and just one by one by one started calling the players. And they were all sort of along the same lines, which is, holy crap, you heard about this? Holy crap, you heard about this? And uh, the stories really lined up. Like, it was such a profound memory for these guys that that they really lined up.
0: I'm sure it's something that those who went through it would never, ever forget, but it doesn't mean they're going to be eager to talk about this. I mean, you know this, Jeff. There are some great, great stories where you can't get anybody to talk. Were they eager to talk to you about what happened that day?
2: I would say not initially, but, um, I, I, you know... I've been reporting and in journalism. What happens is if you, if you can get one person to talk, others open up. So if you can say, hey, I spoke to this guy. Oh, you spoke to Rob? Well, okay, if you spoke to Rob. And, and you know, one interview becomes two and two becomes five. Um, there were some issues. Like uh, there was one guy I was told who was, who was, you know, initially I was told he was the guy who first went up to Tupac. Uh, it was this, this guy who was a linebacker on the team. And I, uh, I tracked him down, but all I had was an address. So I literally went to his house. He still lives in Long Beach. And I knocked on his door, and uh, it turns out he wasn't even there. You know, and there are other players who were supposedly there, but their parents came to the game, and they actually drove home with them, and they weren't even on the bus. So when you're dealing with something that's 21 years ago, one of the hardest parts is not just getting people to open up. It's finding the right people and uh, getting past what's myth versus what's reality.
0: Jeff Perlman joins me for another moment or so. Now, you and I have talked in the past. Your approach when working on a book or a piece like this is to interview as many people as you possibly can and gather as much information as you can. In this case, that included going to Barstow for the first time in your life. Now, despite calling itself California's crossroads of opportunity. Not a lot of people go to Barstow to see Barstow. You drive through Barstow, but you made that your destination. What did you make of Barstow?
2: I mean, it's not the most exciting town in America, but it was. You know, you, you end up if you do a story right, a lot of stuff ends up never even making the uh, never even making the final story. So, I, for example, you know, I spent a lot of time driving around with the town historian. Uh, I, you know, I went to the, the one museum in town. I went to the In and Out Burger. One of the things you do when you're, you know, I went to the In and Out Burger. I interviewed people who'd worked there for a long time. No one remembered it happening, but but just about the place. You count the number of seats you get the design you figure out when it was built you just try to get as much information uh from the scene as possible just to compile as thick a, a narrative as you can
0: all right jeff so you're a guy who you're an east coast native you're now a west coast guy you mentioned in n out burger and barstow where do you come out in the burger wars i mean is shake shack the thing are you a five guys guy are you an in n out guy where do you come out and there's got to be a blog I like post carl's. In that.
2: i like carl's jr the most
0: come on is that horrible it's not good that, that, like that's amazing burger. to me, really. What what separates Carl's from the others that I just mentioned? It's a fresh-baked bun, man. Hunter Strickland of the Giants gets six games. Bryce Harper, four games for their brawl. So again, my question is, exactly how is that going to discourage guys from throwing at other guys? Where's the deterrent in that? Four games for a star, a superstar, and an everyday player who is defending himself versus six games for... For a reliever who started the entire thing. So, exactly what's that going to change? It's certainly not going to make a pitcher think twice before dotting a batter who he thinks stayed in the box one or two seconds too long so he could stay and admire a 500 foot bomb. I mean, think about that. How many innings does that really translate into for a reliever? If you want to discourage pitchers, especially relievers, from throwing at guys intentionally, It's got to be way more than that. It's got to be more like 8 games or 10 games. Assuming that those suspensions stay the same, and they're both appealing, so we'll see. But assuming they stay the same, Harper is looking at missing 36 innings and maybe 16 or 20 plate appearances. Strickland is looking at what? Maybe two or three innings? Maybe double-digit batters? So those punishments really don't fit the crime, nor do I think they change anything at all. And then you've got the reaction. Lots of really interesting reaction, I thought, from both sides, from both the Giants and the Nats, but maybe the best reaction from somebody who had nothing to do with it, Cubs pitcher Jake Arrieta. He had nothing to do with it, but appearing on 670, the score in Chicago, he actually said that the brawl was, quote, refreshing, and that he thought it was awesome.
3: I don't think anybody's right or wrong. I think I thought it was awesome. You know, every once in a while, uh, it's refreshing to see uh, two teams... Emotionally, like charged, getting after it, and, and when, when something like that happens, versus continuing to chirp and talk about it, why don't you go out there and see somebody? And that's exactly what what happened in the game yesterday. I, I sent uh, Samarja a text and just said, "Man, that was that was awesome."
0: Yeah, I wonder if Michael Morris thought that was awesome. Who Samarja lit up? You know, on one hand, I actually agree with him. It, it was awesome and it was refreshing. I mean, it's always refreshing to see a couple of pro athletes punch each other in the face during a game. He's got a point there. Seeing two pro athletes punch each other in the face in a sport that is not boxing or MMA is pretty cool. In fact, extremely refreshing. Just as nothing says refreshing like being drilled with a 98-mile-per-hour heater on a hot summer day. Nothing refreshes like a severely bruised hip. It's better than the Nestle plunge. You know what would be really refreshing? Letting the hitter bring the bat to the mound with him. That's never happened. That would be very refreshing and different and something new. But I'll tell you what may have been the most refreshing aspect of the entire brawl. Not just that those two dudes punched each other in the face or that Harper brought his helmet to a fist fight and tried to throw it into the dugout. Not even Harper going out to actually pay a visit, in Samarja's words, to Strickland, as opposed to just yapping him or chirping. I'll tell you what was refreshing. Jeff Samarja paying a visit to his own teammate, Michael Morse, and concussing him. Now, that part was refreshing. A dude going into concussion protocol after getting put to sleep by his own teammate, as the two of them were rushing in to defend the moronic actions of their own pitcher. Now that's refreshing. Dude body slammed his own teammate. A fact not lost on Bryce Harper, who knew that Samarja was lining him up and ready to knock his ass out, but instead missed and put his own teammate to sleep. That's refreshing. Come to think of it, Arietta's right. That was all refreshing. Give us more of that, and baseball may once again be our so-called national pastime. I mean, this guy was just a matter of fact. He was just getting started. Arietta on 670 The Score said he had no problem. No problem the guy rushing the mound. In fact, he'd have no problem with somebody coming out to pay him a visit.
3: If two guys want to want to go see each other, let them be in the middle, let them throw some punches, and then, then break it up. You know, I, I, I don't like to see any sucker punches. I, I, I do think that um, in the heat of the battle, if you're getting hit on the hip with 98, then you should be able to go out and see somebody. And I, I think the umpires handled it well. I think they they let them exchange for for a moment, and then they try to break it up. You know, uh, I, I, what I don't like to see is is you know a lot of, a lot of chirping and, and guys you know just just talking crap to each other. If, if you got something wrong with a guy, go see him. You know, and then and then they'll break it up and continue to play the game.
0: I mean, this guy was just settling in. Is that a major league pitcher talking or is that an email from Joaquin? And again, he wasn't done. Remember that whole thing about Buster Posey where a lot of people, especially on social media, were killing Buster Posey? Like what kind of a teammate are you? Why didn't you join the fray? Why didn't you do something to prevent Bryce Harper going out to the mound? Ariadna had a different take on that too. He's like, I'm fine with that. In fact, I don't want the catcher to stop the guy if he wants to come out and see me because I've got a little something for him. So he also did not have a problem with Buster Posley not jumping in.
3: If it's my catcher, I want him to wait and, and give me an opportunity to do a little damage. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want it broken up right away. I, Are I, you a karate man? Like, <laughs> what, 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 Jake, I understand you work
0: out and all that, but like, it sounds like you, you look forward to these events.
3: Well, if it happens, uh, I'll let you know I'll, I'll be ready.
0: And notice that these guys thought that was pretty funny, and Arietta didn't. I mean, he was serious about everything he said. He was glad that it happened. He thought it was refreshing. And he's almost saying, hey, you want to come out and see me? Fine. You know where to find me? You know where to find me? But I got a little something for you. And I don't want my catcher to stop that guy from coming out to get what he has coming to him if he comes out to visit me. So he wasn't joking at all. Yeah, I got a feeling that he thought it was more than refreshing. That he thought it was pretty awesome. So we'll see. I know this. The suspensions that went down are not going to deter another reliever from doing that. And by the way, I mean, the whole thing for Strickland, it's really interesting that the reaction is this, that there's not bad blood between the Giants and the Nats. The reaction being that there's not even bad blood between Strickland and Harper. At least there wasn't until he dotted him. The only bad blood or bad feeling was from Strickland. This was a one-way deal. Even after the fact, it was clear the Nats did not have a problem with the Giants because they didn't retaliate last night that's not one of those cases where because they didn't do it last night, they'll get to it. Now they're not going to forget. They really didn't seem to have a problem with the giants. It was just the pitcher. And even Bruce Bochy had a problem with his pitcher because he pulled him aside and had a private conversation with him as well. So I want to get into more of that reaction. I mean, it's a really selfish thing to do. Why? Because Strickland got one of his own guys, concussed because he did it. And number two, this guy's never ever going to have to pick up a bat and face that team. He went three years before he faced Harper again. So he'll never have to pick up a bat. And look at the position he put himself and his team in. Kevin Kisner is my guest. Kevin, good to have you on the program. How are you? I'm doing great, Jim. How about yourself? Good, Kevin. Great. Great to talk to you. Take me back to the start of the tournament. Colonial Country Club is a legendary course, and it's one that you've said really suits your game nicely. So what is it about that track and how it sets up that you like so much?
4: Well, in my opinion, Colonial probably one of the top five courses we play on tour it's uh it's more precision golf uh is a great score you know we're not having to shoot 65s every day to, to be on the leaderboard and uh, i think it just kind of brings into to my strengths of the game it's kind of a golf course that i grew up on were smaller greens shorter length on the on the card but uh being precise into the greens is what it's all about
0: Right, so you're playing well on Sunday, but then Jordan Spieth, who is the local favorite, starts to make his run, and you're hearing the roars. What kind of emotions and thoughts were you feeling when you heard all that noise?
4: Well, I told uh, all the local media, I thought they were all cheering for me, so I was just it <laughs> to my advantage. I like it. I like it. <laughs> no, it's always uh, it's always fun to battle with Jordan. He's a he's a good kid. He's a uh, great player, and obviously you know that the, the best players in the world. Uh, they show up in the biggest moments, so... I uh, never put anything past those guys. When I when I have a chance to win, it, uh, you you just feel like you got to birdie every hole when it's coming down the stretch because guys are so good these days.
0: Right. So you had a 14 foot birdie on 15, and that gave you a two shot lead. Then you bogey 16, and then you had a one shot lead on 18. And as you said afterwards, that's what you dream about having a one shot lead on the last hole. But at the same time, those dreams can quickly become nightmares. And you've had some tournaments where you've been close, but it hasn't gone your way. So what were you thinking as you're on 18?
4: Well, I liked that the ball was in my court. Uh, you know, if I, I knew if I made birdie, um, I pretty much sealed the deal. Obviously, I didn't hit a tee ball like I wanted to, but I knew four was still a good score. Eighteen was playing difficult that day with the different wind direction. We're playing the in out of the left with a dog leg left, so it was difficult to hit the fairway. So uh, I thought four would be a pretty good score and, and make guys make birdies to beat me. But uh, it, I didn't go down exactly how I'd always planned, but um, – you know, having a five footer to win a golf tournament—those are the things you talk about when you're 12 years old on the putting green—and uh, be able to knock that in—it's a big confidence booster
0: for me in my career. And so, Kevin, what's that like? I mean, it did go down. Ultimately, you get that par putt on 18; it drops, you win. What goes through your mind when you win a tournament like that?
4: It's—it's it's weird, Jim. The—you uh, know—you're so in the moment, you're so into what you got to do to to win, and it almost doesn't even sink in until later. You know, you hear that all the time: "I when it it sink in," and it's, it's just weird because. Your body's so amped up and you're so in the moment. You're so worried about all the things I'm trying to get done. And, uh, you know, you finally do it and it's over and everything's done in about two seconds. You're like, damn, I just won.
0: <laughs> damn, I just won is right. And then it does sink in. You know, so you win that tournament, Kevin, and you get this awesome jacket and you get an absolutely massive trophy. In fact, what do you do with a trophy that big? You
4: know, I don't even know if I get that trophy at my house or that's on the stage at the club. Uh. Like I said, after the whirlwind, that thing's heavy, too, by the way. Uh, <laughs> I, hope, I hope the hell I get something just like that. I'll put that up in the, in the mantle of the house. Or obviously, my wife will probably decide where it goes, but I'm sure we'll have a lot of fun with that at home with the boys when I get back in town.
0: Kevin Kisner joining us. You know, the only thing, or that's not the only thing about Sunday's win that you get out of that. It also gives you a very good shot in making the U.S. team for the President's Cup. What would it mean to you to be on that team and competing in this year's President's Cup at Liberty National?
4: Well, at the beginning of the year, the number one goal is to get to East Lake and have a chance to win the FedEx Cup championship at the tour championship. Um, second goal is to play in the team events. All of us, most of us played on tour, played team events, or team sports growing up. And the team aspect is almost lost on the PGA Tour because it's so individualized and so uh, it's such an individual sport. So I, those are the things I dream about, being able to go play on the team, represent my country, and in in probably the only way I ever be able to. And, uh, I, I can't wait. If I get that opportunity, I'm gonna be fired up, especially in New York with those crowds. We'll get those guys rallied up.
0: Hey, Kevin, how's that work? I mean, it's, you want to be a part of that, and it's a gentleman's game. But when you play an individual sport, and then all of a sudden you ask guys to come together, guys who are looking to beat the hell out of it, how do they come together and build chemistry? And how does that work?
4: Well, I, I think that's a difficult thing, and I think chemistry is a big part of it on the team. You got to get a bunch of guys to get along or, and complement each other's game, but also, you know, we're doing it for the country, so. Uh, we're we're a big a bigger representative than just ourselves as our team. We're out there playing for everybody, and and I think that kind of is the underlying theme of of that whole team aspect. Is you know it's not just for you anymore. It's not just for each other. We're doing this for the United States, and that's just a dream to come true if we get that opportunity.
0: Right, Kevin, you're coming off a big win, and you're having a really really big year to date. A few years back, you were playing the Hooters tour and the Tar Heel tour. What were those days like for you? <laughs> you know what. The
4: the camaraderie was probably different back then because everybody was swimming in, in nasty hotels and driving eight hours from tournament to tournament and you had to pile up in each other's car and, and it, was, it was more of a team event there. But obviously the perks of playing the PGA Tour are the best in the world and why everybody that plays golf wants to play on the PGA Tour is because it's the greatest greatest thing going on in golf and uh, just blessed to have this opportunity and, and man it's a, it's an awesome awesome feeling to be able to play on the PGA Tour.
0: I mean, you earned it for sure, but I'm curious, when you're on the smaller tours, were you thinking about things like the President's Cup and expecting to get where you are right now, or were you just focusing on one swing and one shot at a time?
4: I was just trying to pay the pay the entry fee back then to get into the tournament, so uh, be able to put gas in my truck to to get to the next one, I don't think President's Cup was anywhere on the radar. Peter uh, told me 10 years ago that in 2017, I'd have six second place finishes and two wins on a PGA Tour, I'd have taken it, so I'm I'm pretty happy with where, where my career has gone.
0: So is the real pressure in golf trying to win on 18 at Colonial, or is it trying to grind it out on a smaller tour and pay your bills?
4: Well, I think it's all part of the process. You know, such a small percentage, we only have about 150 exempt players on the PGA Tour every year. You think about how many brain surgeons or any type of doctor there are in the world. It's a very small stage, and, and you've got to be the best of the best. So. Um, the ability to get ground through those mini-tours and, and persevere and get better and, and realize how good you can be, it, it's a mental ground. I think just that's that's what's so great about our sport.
0: Kevin, before I let you go, in terms of getting a little bit better, you hooked up with John Tillery as, uh, as your swing coach. How did that come to be, and then what kind of an impact has he had on your game?
4: Well, John and I actually played together on those mini-tours, and, and he was always the range rat. he You get done playing, and, and all of us were going to – find a beer or or go do something else he was the guy on the range hitting balls at these muni golf courses hitting terrible golf balls and filming his swing and i was always like man that guy he swings at it so well but he just never never uh won any of the tournaments and i was playing on the web.com tour and i was struggling really badly he'd gotten into teaching and i just called him and said you think there's any way you could help me and he said yeah come on i flew straight there and it was about four years ago and uh he's been a uh, integral part of my success. And without him, I wouldn't be talking to you right now.
0: And see, the thing is, Kevin, you said to him too. just get me in a position where I could hit it just a little bit better. And I know I can win out there. So I'm curious about two things. If he had that great swing and he worked it as hard as he did, why wasn't he winning? And then how did you know you were as close as you were?
4: Well, I've always been a competitor, so I love the aspect of beating people and not being the the prettiest guy doing it. So I think he he was more caught up in, in making his swing look pretty and making his golf ball go exactly where he wanted. I was more interested in going to beat him in, in 18 holes of golf. So I think the two of our minds combined make a great team, and, and that's why I've been successful is because I'd like to grind it out, grit it out, and, and just figure out a way to get it done.
0: So what's it mean? to I mean, obviously I know what it means to you and your family that you've come up the way you have and you're playing as well as you have. What's it mean to him to see you playing as well as you are and winning the way you are?
1: I
4: think it gives him uh, satisfaction or solidifies all the work he's done and all the studying he's done to come up with his way of of teaching people. And I think it also gives him confidence in everything he's taught me to to show how much success I've had. And, you know, I I try to make him enjoy it and and be as much part of it as, as I have.
0: Let's go to Boston. Mark in Boston. If you have game, you go to the front of the line. You might think that there's no bigger bag move than cutting the line. This guy just did. With my permission. Mark, what's up?
5: Jim, what's happening, partner? What's happening? What's happening? You I, know, I heard that dork Cal in Vegas' call last week with that same old recycled trash he's been propping himself up on for a year. Threatening to rip off my beard and my tattoo and make me eat it. Yo, Cal, all I learned from your call last week was that I have something in common with Conor McGregor now, is that we'll both beat your ass. Cal, I know you're listening right now, so stand up and look in the mirror real quick. You see that face? That's the dude Vegas casinos employ to cool down hot gamblers. You're a Vegas cooler. The one job in the country where the only experience you need on your resume is to be a loser. You're the guy they call over to the table hoping your stink rubs off on the other winners. That's why I implore guys like Mike and Indy and Chad to disengage from this train wreck on Twitter. Just being near this dude ruins your shot. Jim... I want to change speeds here real quick. A lot of clones have asked why my calls have gotten so dark lately, but can you blame me? Do you see this world we live in? It's messed up. And no, calm down conservatives, I'm not talking about President Trump. I'm clearly talking about Tark and Christina getting divorced. Just a huge blow to my brand. I can't even watch Flipper Flop anymore. I know it's a lie. It's got me playing that HGTV drinking game where I take a shot of the magic blue every time Christina says open concept. That's a death wish, by the way. Down is up, up is down, Tiger Woods is getting DUIs, molared on pain pills, and Bolivian marching powder while John Daly is actually winning golf tournaments again. Freaky Friday, Jim, it's the twilight zone. It's truly end times, and that's why I implore you to please hurry the hell up and set a smack off date before Kim Jong bowl cut pulls the plug on all of us. The smack off cannot end with the Kato Kalen of the jungle as the reigning champ. Set a date, Jim, time is short. War A-Rod being Antonio Cromartie's birth control coach. Hashtag pull out stuff.
0: Ouch. Mocky. Mock in Boston. What do I do with that, Alvin? Do I rack that? Or do I run that? Rack him! As always, clones, thank you very much for listening. I appreciate it very much. Hit subscribe, tell a friend, trust the podcast. Check back tomorrow. We'll see you then.
1: How to show up with Coca-Cola energy.